Please stand for the reading of God's word. Exodus 16, verses 13 through 36. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is the day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it. But on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather it, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, That is what the Lord has commanded. This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread with which I have fed you in the wilderness, when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put it put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord, to keep throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna forty years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. An omer is the tenth part of an ephah. May God apply the reading of his word to our hearts. You may be seated. Let us go to the Lord before we begin our time of presenting the message. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to have your word read. We pray that uh, you, through the power of your spirit, will do the work of applying this to our hearts, that we will leave a change to transform people unto your glory and our good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as you look at your bulletin, you can see that uh, this is not typical uh, as far as um, the messages go from, from how I typically preach in that. This is a part one of two parts. And the reason it is is because, as you notice from Stephen's reading of this, this is a lengthy text, and we can't take it all on. And some of the text is, is it kind of, uh, there's truths that weave their way through it, so we need to jump around a little bit today in order to get uh, three of the six things that we are to learn, or that we are to learn if we are going to be a set-apart people, which is really what the title is, learning to be a set-apart people. So as we ponder what this means uh, to be a set-apart people or a group, I want to get you thinking. Think about over the course of your life, 
how many different groups that you've participated in? How many groups have you been a part of? They, they have a name, they have some type of an identity, they have some type of a goal or mission. They're trying to achieve something. As I pondered this this week, this, these not so set apart groups that I've been a part of, I can think back as early as high school. Um, we, a group of my friends, actually identified ourselves. We self-identified, although not in the way you see it today, um, as a group of people that were just normal people. What we, we refer to ourselves, well, let me explain. We weren't skilled enough to be the athletes. We weren't smart enough to be the nerds. And we didn't want any part of uh, the drugs. So we didn't want it to be a part of that crowd. Well, that left a crowd that really wasn't categorized. In, but there was no category in, in high school. So we referred to ourselves as we saw ourselves in the eyes of those other people that were able to be a part of these groups. We referred to ourselves as TC5. There were five of us. That's, that's an easy one. The TC was, were, uh, stood for the chumps. We saw ourselves as just middle of the rotors. You know, we, we were just the guys that each of us had a job all the way from sophomore year. Each of us bought our own vehicles, paid our own insurance, and, and bought our own gasoline. And we had to work to do that. And so we, were, we didn't have the time to get into some of these other extracurricular activities. But it was interesting that that was the first, and, we, and we, I enjoyed that. And then after uh, high school, got into the, the college years and found myself and part of a vintage Mustang group because the car I chose to purchase as a junior was a 1965 Ford Mustang. So now, I, you know, ooh, you can be a part of this group. And it was a nostalgic group, and there were so many stories tied to it. And for a young guy to be a part of it was something, and um, it, was, it was fun. Well, then we moved, I moved on to law enforcement, and I enjoyed being an investigator. So pretty soon I was identifying and being a part of investigator groups. And then into leadership, and I was part of the, uh, the PD's leadership groups. And then that season came to an end. And then I began in 2011 a part of uh, full-time ministry. I had moved from being a, what might be referred to as a lay elder, an elder who is not being paid by the church, uh, to a paid elder on staff at a different church. And I began working on a degree, and, and, and now to this day I'm still part of the ACBC, Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. It's interesting. I, I, I almost thought, am I, am I done with groups? And, and I thought, well, no, I'm still part of a group, but it's still going on. I'm just in a new phase, a new season. And there are some neat things that I've learned as, as I was pondering, what are some takeaways on these groups that I've been a part of? What, what, what can I convey that would show something that maybe is common to you as you, you were thinking through groups? And that is that these groups have a way of making us Understand that there's something bigger than just us. There's an identity greater than just self. And there's value in that. I certainly took value in that. There's a sense of belongingness in that. It didn't matter, you know, necessarily your status within the group. You were part of the group. And so you were accepted. You felt like you belonged. And that was a blessing to, to know that. There was also a sense where... You could go through these groups, your, your time with these groups, depending on which groups they were, and you could learn things. And you, ha you found out that there were some valuable lessons in life that you were learning within these groups. But you also, depending on the group, could give to those outside of the groups. You could, you could take that which you learned, the skill, the, the ability to relate to people, to lead people, whatever it is, and apply it to those that weren't in the group, and they could be blessed and they could benefit from it. So the groups had, had value. They, it just wasn't something to fill time. At least they could have value. I don't know how much the high school group had in the way of value. But one of the things that is different, is, is different than what we're looking at today in our text, is that each of these groups was not, it was temporal. It was for a season. It was for a time. That's typically... Not with every group. I'm sure you could think of something that maybe transcended the different seasons of your life. But for me, I could see that th these groups came and went. And when I went on to the next season, I would be faced with, do I want to be a part of that group? In some sense, they were fleeting. Time left that identity behind. My, my, my position in that group was no longer. Well, today we're going to look at a unique 
set apart, and everlasting group. These are the, the people of God, and we will see, we'll look at the first three designs of God upon this group. In other words, what did he design this group either to participate in or be or to the identity that they have so we can understand, not go beyond the fact that this is a group that transcends seasons of our lives. This is a group that once you are in this group, you remain by the, the grace of God, by the sustaining mercy of God in this group. And therefore, it has such more significant value. But what, what other things make up or identify or partake, do we partake in as, as some of these groups? So as you look at your bulletin, you'll see the takeaway today. And you'll see, to some extent, you'll see the, the wording of the three areas that we'll look at. And the takeaway on your bulletin on, on the back where it deals with the sermon outline is to be a set-apart people of God. We must rely on heaven's daily sustenance Two, live by God's commands and three, embrace the one who has done good for us in the end. And I know done good isn't good English, but it's good enough for the Bible. And I'm quoting exactly from the Bible on that one. So bear with me. I'll take us there in the sermon and you can see it's not a typo. It's not a grammatical error. With that, let's start by taking a look at uh, the set-apart group or the set-apart people, the people who are God's people, are people who rely on God's sustenance, that which he provides. So let's take a look. We'll be in verses 13 through uh, uh, 15, and then we're going to jump to uh, verse 21, and that's all we're going to cover under that section. It says 13 uh, through 20. It's just that it, it is within that context. So verse 13, it starts off, In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. I want you to consider something. If if we were to open the doors and quail were to fly in here and they covered just the floor in this room, think how much quail that is. That is an abundance of quail. So when we're talking about God's sustaining work, we can see here that God is a very gracious God. These are our people that have grumbled about having nothing to eat. They want meat and they want bread. And God is going to give them the meat by way of bringing this flock, if you will, of birds into into their camp, making them readily available in abundance for them to eat. I wish uh, Stephen was able to be here. Stephen Moss, he asked me a question uh, last week as to the regularity of the meat. And in studying it this week, this was designed to be, if you'll notice, they came in the evening, and then the morning begins, and we end up with the the Israelites having manna in the morning. The manna continues. The meat is a one-time, designed for a one-time blessing. We're going to see it again out of God's mercy, but it was designed to show them the abundance of his love and meeting their desire despite their grumbling, and then to teach them to rely on him through the daily feeding of manna. So when you hear that, there, that, that there's the meat given, the meat was only designed or intended for, the, for that one evening meal before they, they started the next day. Let's continue on. And in, the morning, dew lay, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. Verse 14. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is this? It's manhu, by the way, in Hebrew. That's exactly what they said, manhu. If you wonder where we get the the word mana, it's not from the Hebrew. It's from the Greek interpretation of the Hebrew. Manhu is what they said. What is this? We continue on. For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that Yahweh has given you to eat. Remember, in verse 4, he had said, uh, Yahweh had told Moses, I'm going to give them food to eat. And he, he, he refers to this food as bread from heaven. Now he's clarifying this is bread from heaven that is bread from Yahweh. So we make it clear. 
that what we see here is divine sustenance. The meat, you might say, was by earthly means of God's doing, God bringing the, the winds forward that would bring in this flock of quail, and they would land there. Some say they landed there before because of exhaustion. Whatever means God used, he used the, the regular earthly means to bring these quail about. The manna? The manna is divine sustenance. It is not a food that the earth would normally be able to produce. This is coming from, from heaven above. This is going to last during their time in the wilderness to show them I am the God that will divinely sustain you in your wilderness journey. They continue on in verse 21. We looked, we have to shift down a bit. Morning by morning. Now keep in mind, he's talking about the first week of this occurring. So it would be as if he's saying, the first five days, because something different happens on the sixth day, they gathered it. As much as he could, he could eat, as much as, yes, he could eat. The idea, and we're not going to be able to get there today. In fact, uh, well, we're going to get there in the, not in this section. We'll take it on in the next point. Is this, when they can eat as much as they can eat, it's not a gluttonous thing. It's a measured amount of abundance, but a measured amount. He is teaching them discipline as well. He's teaching them to rely on them. Interesting enough, this Omer... I don't know how many of you think of an omer and think, oh, I know, I used that in last night's recipe. No, we don't use that so much. We don't use that at all. In fact, most of that understanding of that measure is gone. It was tied to the ancient Near East, and in particular, we saw it in the, in, in the biblical times. You, to give you an idea how much it was, it would be a half gallon of this substance, this manna. This is enough to sustain someone for a whole day and be, have plenty and be filled completely. So it just gives you an idea of how much this is. Morning by morning of the first day of the week, they gathered it as much as he could, I mean, up to the half gallon. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Interesting. Yahweh is, is providing a pattern of you go to God for your divine sustenance in the morning. Get up late, you miss it. You go in the morning. It's a discipline he is creating in them. He is bringing it morning by morning. We have been studying that God brought these people out into the wilderness. This is a place that is difficult. This is a place that is harsh. It can be unforgiving. If you don't have food and water, you'll die. We understand the wilderness. We understand the wilderness that is our culture. If you do not have divine sustenance, you are going to be in a miserable place called the life here on earth without the sustenance from God. And we can see it. We, every, all of us have friends that you sit there and you, you hear their hopelessness, their despair, their critical nature of this world because all they have is that which they provide for themselves. They are not receiving the divine sustenance from above. And God intends for the Hebrews as he does us to make us understand that we are to seek him daily for this divine sustenance. That's why there's only a measured portion given. That we are to rely on God and turn away from self-reliance. Self-reliance will bring us to a place where God becomes small in our lives and, it's become, and it ends up being a life focused on what can I do for self? I had a gentleman one time, not at this church, it was at another church that I was, I was pastoring at, and he came to me somewhat, it was almost like a, a, an experience where the rich run, young ruler comes to Christ, almost like you, there's some sincerity, but you feel like there's almost like a trick involved. And he came to me one time, he says, 
when should I do my devotional time? Are you going to tell me that I have to do it at a certain time? And I could see that this was kind of a setup. I knew he had done shift work, meaning that he, his day didn't technically start when most people's day starts. He worked the evening shift. And, and it felt like he was trying to trap me in like, are you going to be, are you going to tell me that your church is, is legalistic, that it, it's just one time, and if you don't follow this, that somehow God isn't going to, to give you the mercies that you call out for? And one of the things that I found helpful was the Lord's Prayer and helping him understand this. You'll, you'll notice that when the Lord teaches his disciples, after they had asked him, teach us to pray, what he prays is a prayer that seems to be in context looking at the day ahead when he prays what we're to pray. That, so that we go into this day in a place where we are, as he puts it, in the Lord's Prayer, asking God to give us this day our daily bread. You start out the day asking God. You start out the day recognizing, I want this day to go according to your will and not my will. And I'm going to need your sustenance to keep that in the right perspective. The sustenance goes much beyond, and certainly it entails the physical, but the focus of it is grace. Sustaining grace. We need it to be righted in our ship, if you will, as we carry forward in, in the day's journey. My question to the young man went something like this, and it's only by the grace of God I was able to, to, to think it. I'm not, as you notice, I wasn't part of the nerd group. I wish I would because I wish I had that level of, of academe, academic thinking, critical thinking that can think quick on my feet and, and, and recall and retain and connect like some of the people that were at that in that group. So I know it was the Lord that gave me the wisdom on that day. And my question to him is, how much of your day do you want to go it alone on your own with the, without the sustaining grace of God? One of the things that I see Christ doing is that when he wants to convict somebody, he asks a question. And that, that gentleman looked at me, and he really didn't have much to say. It was that we were at the end of a men's meeting, a men's uh, uh, morning men's Bible study, and he kind of walked away almost like he was pondering it. And I hope it helped him. I hope it, he, he realized that, really, the question is the same to each of us. Are you so hurried in your day to get your, to wherever you're getting to that you don't have time to reach out to God and rely on his sustenance, his divine bread, his that is capable of allowing us to bring about God's will in our day versus our own self-focused will? Well, we see that we are not only a, as a set-apart people to be relying on God's divine sustenance, but we are a people who are also to live by God's commands. Turn to uh, verse 16, and we'll look at um, 16 through 20. And let's walk through these, these commands. Oftentimes, when you hear the word command, you quickly run to your mind and get a sense of, oh, this is, this is somebody bossing me around telling me what to do. Well, let's take a look at our God's commands. Verse 16. This is what Yahweh has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can. Interesting. Remember, in fact, Pete, if you were here for the Sunday school lesson, Hebrew, in their literature, it works cyclical. If you hear words in the exact same wording as someplace earlier, they're trying to get you to, what would happen is they would hear those words and they would go, oh wait, there's a connection back to this previous story. So that story has bearing on this story. It's not a one for one and you carry it all forward, but you think about it and, and you're asking yourself, what's the connection here? Well, we actually have that occurring when he says, as much as any of, of it, excuse me, as much as he can eat, those words were spoken by God in giving direction on the Passover when they were to gather in one home 
and, and eat the Passover lamb, preparing to leave an exodus quickly out of Egypt, when he said, it's go time, you were ready to go. But he used the exact terminology in this, that he said at that time, eat as much as you can eat. Now, the idea is a portion, a measured portion, but it was enough to sustain you and sustain you in a way that you had an abundance of sustenance. So we see it connected to the Passover. If God is the God over the Passover meal, the meal that atoned for us and made it possible that we could even take this Exodus journey out of, they were taking an Exodus journey out of the bondage to the Egyptians. We are in the Exodus. We take our, our Exodus, our journey, our departure out of the bondage of sin. And he prepares for us before that. He, or I should say, as he is, uh, as he is leading us into that Exodus, or you could say as he's as he's saving us, he gives us the, the atoning meat of the Lamb of God. He doesn't stop. You and I are in a wilderness. We're in the wilderness of this culture till the day we die and enter into the promised land. And he will not stop sustaining us. But there is a part on our behalf where we need to recognize we need that sustenance. If we so proudly stand by and try and do it in our own ways, we will see the folly of our pride in our lives. So we see that he continues to, to communicate to us his graciousness, his commitment, his faithfulness. He is a worthy God, worthy to be praised, worthy to come to in prayer and say, please, give me what I need this day that your will might be done in my life. And he continues on. You shall, you shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. All right, we're cooperating with the command. They gathered some, some more, some less. What's going on there? Well, if you are a child, you don't need the full half gallon. And so it's, it's appropriated by way of household. And maybe if you're the father and, and you're doing more in the way there and you have a bigger frame or, or, or uh, energy use, you would take some from the little child. The idea is that there was plenty there for all. And, and as well as, as you look at the families, some families are larger. They had more. Some families are smaller. They had less that they would gather, meaning that there were less uh, people in it. So in that context, you also see uh, uh, some more and some less. But when they had measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. And that's the key that, that he's communicating. There's never a lack. In God's economy of sustaining grace, there is never lack. He continues on. Each of them gathered as much as he could, and Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it till morning. Here, we're just going to focus on, he's emphasizing daily provision. That's the gist at this part of the passage, daily provision. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. I think Moses is righteously angry. Because they don't follow God's command. It's not about what he said. It's that they're not following and honoring God. And in some sense, the Israelites realize they're judged as a people. When we are disobedient, we stand potentially in judgment of God. Now he, at this time, God is, as we've seen, God is graciously training them. And we don't see the judgment occurring. We don't see the retribution occurring to them that, that sin demands. When they leave Sinai, we're going to see something different happen as a means of disciplining them, as a means of them gaining an understanding, look, this is what it means to be a set-apart and holy people. We need to be serious about what it means to be a set-apart and holy people. Something interesting about the fact that they, they took additional, or they, excuse me, they, left it, uh, they had it left over and it, and it stank, what we see here is that there's no need for them to, to leave any left over. They're going to get all they need for the next, next day. 
this is simply the beginnings of what we see of this people, really the beginnings of being revealed. It's not like it's, it's not known in their own hearts, but we as the people that get to watch this unfold, we get to see the greed in their hearts. God says, do it this way, rely on me daily, and they say, I got a better plan. I'm going to put just a little more away because God may not be faithful tomorrow. And then I'll be okay in case we don't, I don't get as much tomorrow. And that's just, that's just greed working in our hearts, a self-focus. Well, before we get to chapter, excuse me, verse 27, I want to share with you that what happened on the sixth day, just to give you a little context here, uh, and you, you read it today, so you do know it. The sixth day, the people obediently gathered two portions. They were told to gather two portions on the sixth day because the seventh day is a holy Sabbath. And you're not going to need to to do anything other than rest in my provision. And I can't wait to to share with you next week what that rest means. What does that Sabbath rest mean? We're going to spend some time in that. It's a beautiful picture. It is a theme that runs the course of the Bible. And that's why we're breaking it off into two different lessons, a part one and a part two. And then it says... Uh, in verse 27, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather. What are they doing gathering? They can already see they have double portion. You can't say they didn't know it was wrong. They gathered twice as much the day before. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Really? No, duh. And I can't help but see myself in that. When I choose to sin and my life becomes difficult, when I've injured my relationship with my wife or someone else I love because I chose to sin, no duh, Nick. Really? You expected something different? God has told you. He has given you his loving command so that the economy of my relationship with my wife or with somebody in this congregation or with God himself is not hindered It is a beautiful, close, trusting, and trustworthy relationship. But when I sin, I spoil it. It stinks. There's a stench. There's a corruption in the midst of it. And Yahweh said to Moses, how long will you refuse And by the way, the you there is plural. He's talking about all the people. How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? We have to remember, in no way are the laws that we're dealing with right here in context in any way depriving the Israelites. It's just the opposite. It's giving them an abundance of blessing. It's not like, whoa, He's depriving me somehow. No, it's in fact, it's the overreach. It's the transgression. It's the going into a boundary that we were told not to that brings this difficulty, that brings this stench. In fact, Yahweh's laws are intended to provide for the Israelites' physical needs, to develop a relationship of trust. Think about this. For those of you who have a a dear friend, trustworthy dear friend, or a spouse, how beautiful is that relationship when it has been paved on the path of righteousness, on the path of trust, because you stayed on the path of righteousness, and you realize the depth of the beauty of the relationship, you have sensed it, And you were like, this is what I want. This is what God is trying to teach them. If you will trust me, you will understand who I am as your God. I am a loving, generous, caring, providing God. There is nothing you will lack in need. And yet we look elsewhere for what we think we need. Not only does he provide for their physical needs, not only does he de- is he trying to develop a relational trust where they learn to trust him, but Yahweh's laws are, are, are intended to help them understand 
their identity, for us to understand our identity of set-apart people. Let me just read to you this. This is an application. You and I, the people of God, miss out on God's intended goodness when we fail to obey his laws and his commands. So let me pose some challenging questions to each of us as we examine our lives. Are you or I carelessly living our lives based on what we think is right? Carelessly meaning that we're not paying attention to the, to the laws or we don't even know because we don't pick up the book that God so lovingly gave us so he could communicate to us. We don't worship a God who we don't know, meaning that who we don't know what to expect, how to relate to him. We worship a God who has given us his loving commands, laws, precepts, principles, all of them. I wanted to know. In the Bible, it talks about don't ex- uh, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Don't give them this inconsistency of discipline where they don't understand and can't get a context of knowing what to expect when I do this act. Our God does not exasperate us. He gives us everything we need to know in order to relate with him in a relationship of loving trust. Do you live in a way that is hardly distinguishable from the rest of the world? Could you, could someone say to you, could they say to your family, could they say to you individually, oh, those De Benedettos, they, they are a strange bunch. They don't, they don't act like the rest of the world. And, and you sit there and go, thank you, Jesus. I hope that is that because we're doing things right. It's not some offshoot of, of something unusual. My point is, can't, do we look different or are we undistinguishable, indistinguishable, not able to be distinguished from the world? Number four. Actually, this is number three. Is your life possibly polluted with greed? Mine is. Every time I sin, I see the greed in my sin. But when I contextualize it as pollution, as disobedience, it brings me to a place where I'm more convicted. I don't want that pollution in my life. I don't want that pollution polluting my relationships in my life, including my, my most important relationship with my God, but certainly as well with the woman I love and I'm covenanted to, the children I have and are covenanted to to this day in a sense that I will always be their father, the grandchildren I've been blessed with, the, the church that is my family to a degree that I don't have with my own siblings who are not believers, all of the disobedience pollutes that. It, is, it brings about a relationship that is so much less. And lastly, number four, are you, and I'm speaking to myself as well in this, like the Israelites, still living out of an identity that identifies with Egyptians or with Egyptians or Egyptian culture? Do we act more like Egyptians than we do Hebrews? Do we act more like the lost world than we do Christians? Think about the context. What are we talking about in our conversations? How are we, how are we communicating with people? Are we demonstrating a love for the very people that we want to reach? Maybe you and I need to hear the words of Moses, and I'm referring to... Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, and I'm going to go about halfway in that, and then I'm going to transition over to Deuteronomy 8, verse 16, because they both deal with the issue, but in 16 it adds something. I want you to hear this. What was the purpose of the wilderness? Thank you, Jesus, that you let Moses know what the purpose was, because I need to know the purpose of the wilderness, because the wilderness is hard. I get tired of being in the wilderness and I'd like to know why I'm still here. Have I been bad and you're disciplining me? Or am I in the wilderness and sin isn't the reason I'm in the wilderness? I'll put it that way. The wilderness just is the difficult culture that we live in. Listen to this. He, Yahweh, humbled you and let you be hungry hmm, and fed you with manna, which you did not know. He let you be hungry 
so that you'd realize you needed something more than just food. You needed manna. You needed bread from heaven. So there, the, that some, you could, God could be accused of lack. Well, you let him be hungry. No, he's teaching us something in the midst of that. And ultimately, it's pointing to you're going for your sustenance in the physical world. Come to me, the God of the heavens, the God over the earth who can provide you real heavenly sustenance. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Do you see the increase in relationship he is building as he moves through time and sharing himself, revealing himself more and more? Your fathers did not know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh. All of the commands, all of the precepts, all of the principles, all of the wisdom. This is what man lives on. It's interesting. Do you remember someone quoting this to Satan himself? That would be Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, when he tries to trick him. When, when Satan tries to trick him to get him to worship him. Let's continue on. In verse 16, it just shifts then. In the wilderness, he fed you with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you. And then listen to this. In the difficulty of testing, not tempting, don't hear that. God never tempts, never. He tests to see so we can know where we stand with him. He knows, but sometimes we go about and we don't. And we need a testing to reveal to us, oh God, I am wrong. I have, I have been living by self-reliance in this area. Please humble me in this and let me rely on you. He says this, what is he testing you for? To do good to you or for you in the end. Well, the first good is salvation. Many of us came to salvation through a difficult time. It, within the wilderness we live. He's doing it not only to, through salvation, but he continues to test us as he's drawing us away from our old Egyptian ways, our ways of the world, so that we will become more and more made into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the most loving thing he could do. We were designed to image our God in the garden we are still designed to be image bearers. He loves us enough to allow us in the wilderness to realize as we look at ourselves in, in the reflection of whatever pond of water there might be, the mirror you might face to be reminded of, I see you, Jesus, as you stare, but I have a long ways to go. I need more of you. I need your sustaining grace we live by God's commands if we're a set-apart people of God. I want to say something that might be a little bit of a challenge. Sometimes you will, I will face somebody who will say these words, Pastor, you don't understand. I can't. And then fill in the blank for the command. And I want to say this as lovingly as possible, not so much as a rebuke, but as an encouragement. You're right. You can't. So go to the sustained sustenance, the, the sustaining grace of God himself. He has brought you to an end of your place, of you, really, I should say, an end of you. You need to seek him. In the midst of this wilderness, he lovingly tested you to show you. Stop trying to do it on your own. Admit you can't and turn to the one who can. And lastly, we look at a set-apart people are people who embrace the bread of life. We're going to leave our text in the Old Testament, and we're going to go to the New Testament. There's ten verses I want to work through quickly, but I think it will, really, there's not much I need to add to it because it's so rich in understanding. In John 6, 25 to 35, that is John 6, 25 to 35, this is... He has fed the 5,000 by way of bread. 
You can see the connection back. He has gone to the other side with his disciples, and now the, the, the crowd, we don't know if it's the, all the 5,000, have caught up to him on the other side. They're like, where are you going? We want you to keep performing these miracles. And this is the conversation he has with them. Verse 25, when they, and that would be the crowd of the 5,000, found him, and that's Jesus, on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do you hear the wording of, our, of what we're dealing with here? Loaves, and they can eat their fill. They are only focused on the fill of their belly. They have missed the eternal standing of the manna. The, the, the bread from heaven was always to point to heaven. And in fact, we're going to see what comes from heaven is, and what that actually is. So we continue on. Do not work, or in other words, expend your effort. Don't think of it as a trade. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the f- food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, that's Jesus' favorite title for himself, focusing on his humanity, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to, do to be doing the good works of God? And Jesus answered them. Listen to this. If you ever fall into the trap of performance-based salvation, Jesus straightens you out right here. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in me that you embrace wholeheartedly who I am as the Son of God, he's going to point that out in a minute, and what I was called to do and what I have done for you. That you believe in whom he, God the Father, has sent. Has sent from where? From heaven. He's going to articulate, I am the bread of life. Sent from heaven. He continues on. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? The the blindness here, if we weren't so much like them, would almost be overwhelming our minds. Like, really, you don't get it? How, How We have to look back at ourselves. Don't look at them as dumb. I'm sorry, but look at ourselves. Let's continue on. What must we prefer? What work uh, do you? Excuse me. So he said to them, "Then what sign do you do, and, and that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna. See the connection back in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to, to eat. Oh wow, they're really schooling Jesus on that one. They got some scripture right. Um, Jesus then said to them, and he corrects them so lovingly. Truly, truly, I say to you." It was not Moses that, who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread. Jesus Christ is the true bread. He is the true Israel. He's the true Son of God that accomplished that which Adam failed to and that which the nation of Israel failed to do. It referred to his Son. You, when you see true, you know he's referring to Jesus Christ himself, the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. They still don't get it. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. In other words, I'm the one that has lived the perfect life. I'm the one who is yet but will. In this place where he's talking to them, he's letting them know, to look, uh, look ahead, what he will do. He will die a sacrificial death for them. He will die a death they deserve, you and I deserve, that we might have this eternal life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. I hope your context is always now going back. When you hear those words, that's a hyperlink back to what we just experienced in the last two sermons. 
First they thirst and they grumbled. Then they, they, they hunger and they grumble. And he provides both. This is who Jesus Christ is. He is the heavenly divine provision that makes for not just a, your best life now, but eternal life that you can have forever, forever be a part of the set-apart people. So the question is, when my wife asked me, when we were dating, she was quizzing me to find out if I was a Christian. She asked me if I knew Jesus, and I rattled off a bunch of facts because that's what I was taught. And those facts were factual. They were, they were right. But I had a history. I knew the facts, and I had no relationship. And she didn't know it. I didn't know it. The point being is, I want to challenge you. Are you allowing what you have learned in the past to guide you in some form of what I experienced prior to salvation? I had facts of Jesus. I had knowledge of Jesus. But he was certainly was not one I embraced as the bread of life and the one that made it possible for me to have eternal life. Are you, Redeemer, Reformed Baptist Church, along with me, ready to be a set-apart people? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are so loving that you tell us how to be a set-apart people. You challenge us to trust in you. Help us to walk this journey as a people of God. In our American society, we are individualistic. We are taught from word go, we can do anything. Just strap on those bootstraps and go, baby, go. And you can get it all done. You can be anyone or do anything you want to do. Heavenly Father, we're done with that. We come to you as a people of God saying we want to be the set-apart people of God, each helping the other along this wilderness journey for your glory, by your sustaining grace, and through your wisdom, your words, your precepts, your commands. Let this be so. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.